Okay, Booker Tov, good morning, everyone. Our uh, partial class this morning is sponsored, co-sponsored by Dr. Zilan and Juliana Rosenblatt in commemoration of the Yeretzad of his beloved father, Avram ben Yisrael, and Dr. Sidney and Mrs. Sheila Stern in honor of our partial class. So thank you very much for your sponsorship. As always, if you'd like to sponsor, you can speak to the shul office and arrange it. Okay, we have the privilege of studying Parsha's Kisisa together this week. How many of you are snowbirds? How happy are you to still be in Florida right now? Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Yeah, I was on a plane back from, last, from New York last night, and the, the plane was giddy with excitement of people leaving New York, coming to Florida. It was, uh, it was really unbelievable. Should stay here just the whole year round. Okay, Parshas Kisisa, page 484 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. As always, we'll do our overview of the Parsha, and then we will get into some specific psukim together. Our Parsha begins, Kisisa, it's familiar to us. We read it recently. It's the story of the Machatzis HaShekel, the census of the Jewish people. Kisisa is Rosh B'nei Yisrael of Kudehem. Kisisa, what does that mean? Sisa means... Well, Art School translates it as to take a census, but the word sisa doesn't really mean a census. What does it mean? It means to lift. When you lift the heads of the Jewish people, how do you lift someone? By making them feel counted. By acknowledging their presence, their contribution, their participation. By acknowledging their existence is how you lift somebody up. So when you lift the Jewish people by making them counted... When you lift them by including them in the count, what's the mechanism through which they do that? V'nasnu famously is a palindrome. It reads the same forwards and backwards. We discussed this a few weeks ago. The scientific research that supports the idea that when you give, you get more in return. That, again, we talked about the two groups of people that were both given money. One were told to spend it on others and others were told to spend it on themselves. And those who took that small modest amount of money and spent it on others, measured greater happiness afterwards than those that took the money and spent it on themselves. Vinas nu is a palindrome. Person gives kofr nafsho to be counted. Zayit nu, what do you give? Machatzis ha-shekel b'shekel ha-kodesh. You give half a shekel. Famously, the commentaries all ask, half a shekel? That's a terribly inefficient way to count. It's much more efficient for everyone to give a shekel. If everyone gives a complete unit, then you know exactly, you count how many units you have and you know how many people you have. Why give, <coughs> why give a fraction of a unit? A half a unit is a terribly inefficient way to count. You know, today's Pi Day. You know what Pi Day is? It's March 14th, 3.14. It's March 14th, it's Pi Day. Okay, 3.1417, which is not Pi. What's pi? 3.14, something else. Anyway, but why give half a shekel? Half a denomination is an inefficient way to count. So the Mephoshim will explain, the idea is that when we contribute to be counted, we should never mistakenly conclude that we're a whole, that we are an entire unit on our own, that we've arrived, that we're all that, that we matter. We need to always see ourselves as half a unit. It's only when we combine with others it's only when we complement and supplement, it's only with a sense of unity that we realize we are incomplete on our own. Participating in the community is what makes us whole. 
If you live on your own, you could, the Rambam writes, it's an amazing, astounding Rambam. On a deserted island, by, it's tempting sometimes to leave the Jewish people, an incorrigible people. We'll see, that's what the whole parish is about. The incorrigible Jewish people. So you're tempted sometimes to go. I know a, he's uh, not a rabbi, but he runs a major Jewish institution. And once a year he goes on a cruise that he calls the No Jews Cruise. He tries to find a cruise with no Jews. The No Jews Cruise. He just needs a week. So the Rambam says to go live on a deserted island, take your set of shas and your Rambam, your kosher food, build your Eruv, daven three times a day, be scrupulously observant of Torah and mitzvos, and yet, because you're Polish Manat Sibur, somebody who does not identify with the Jewish people, somebody who sees themselves as independent, apart from the Jewish people, has no chilek in Olam Haba. Fundamental axiomatic to our faith is the notion that I'm not complete on my own, even if I'm observing everything perfectly, even if I'm doing everything to a T. But I'm incomplete. I'm a machatzis, a shekel. I need to combine with others. Who counted from 20 years and up has to give. The ashir lo lo yamit mi shekel. These were not the contributions to the building of the Mishkan or to the major um, contributions of the Mishkan. So everyone gave the same. The rich didn't give more, the poor didn't give less. Everyone gave that machatzis a shekel. We all contribute equally and evenly to the Jewish people and to be able to be combined, to be whole together. Rashi says, Hashem showed Moshe Madbeya shall eish. When he wanted to give Moshe the image of what this machatz shekel was supposed to be, it was a coin on fire. What was the idea of a coin on fire? So the Svarim all explain. The notion is that just as fire is a double-edged sword, just like fire on the one hand is a source of energy and light and warmth, on the other hand, it can burn, it can consume, it can destroy. So too money. On the one hand, it's a commodity for building, for good, to be constructive. On the other hand, a misunderstanding or a misappropriate use of money or an inappropriate attitude towards money can destroy, can self-destruct, can compromise. Like fire can be used either way, so too money has that capacity by giving it to the Mishkan. It's the ultimate use of money. When we realize that the money is not really ours, we are stewards on Hashem's money, and when we allocate it properly, He gives us more to watch. If you have a broker who makes you a lot of money, when you get more money, you're going to give it to that broker because he uses it well, he invests it wisely. Because Baruch has the same attitude towards us. He invests with us, and He sees what kind of return we give. So when we use that money on ourselves, bigger house, a nicer car, a more expensive Pesach program, fancier clothing, Starbucks, when we use the money exclusively on ourselves, Shem says, I'm not getting much of a return. Not only am I not giving the broker more money, I may get my, take my money back. I'm not getting a good return on the principal. But when a Kodesh Baruch Hu invests in us, and we give him an incredible return, because we're helping his other children, we're helping his causes, we're advancing his mission, he gets an incredible return on the investment with us. He says, here's another allocation, here's another check. How can I wire you more money? Aser, taser, aser, bishvil, shatis, asher. Okay, then the parsha goes on. Still the overview. The parsha goes on. The kalim, the utensils of the Mishkan, which again, the commentaries all wonder why they included here. Why weren't these in Truma, where we saw the Aron, the Shulchan, the Menorah, the original utensils of the Mishkan. Here we have the Kior, Nechoshes. We have the laver where the Kohanim would wash 
their hands and feet before performing the avoda. Famously, we all know what the base of the kior was made out of the mirrors. The Kohanim would look into it and they'd see the mirrors that the women used to beautify themselves in Mitzrayim in order to create a continuity. At first the Kohanim, Moshe himself protested, what do you mean? These mirrors were an instrument of licentiousness. They were an instrument of, of physicality, material world. They beautified themselves in it. That's the message of the holiest place on earth, is to look in the mirror and be reminded of the women who used them to seduce their husbands. And the answer HaKadosh Baruch Hu says is, Yes, because when all the men gave up, when they lived in the moment, when they lacked any optimism or hope or positive spirit, the women were roa eshanolad. The women said, you know what, we're going to get out of here. There's going to be a brighter future. And we deserve to have more children. They beautified themselves, they had more children. And in perpetuity, the faith and optimism and positive spirit of the women was preserved. So the Kohanim, every day they had to wash their hands and feet, they had to look into that mirror and be, rem- be reminded of the optimism of the Nashim Tzidkaniyos who saved our people. Next we have the Besamim Rosh. Here we're a week late, or a few days late. The Torah says, Kachacha Besamim Rosh, Mar Dror. Chamesh Meos, Kinmon Besam Machtiso, Chamishim Masayim. When the Gemara wonders, Mordechai Torah Minayin, it's the Besamim. Mar drawer and so on. We have the incense. Then, then we have the uh, the kachlach hasamim, page four eighty eight. We have the recipe of the incense. We know the incense included in it a uh, very uh, odorous ingredient, a terrible ingredient. And the Torah tells us, yeah, from here we learn. This is uh, Yom Kippur on a materialist balim avaryanim that we are not whole. Now let's go back to the beginning of the parsha. You might think, whose machatzis do I want? In my collection, whose half a shekel do I want? The righteous, the noble, the virtuous. But the Rashaim, the people who are wicked, rebellious, the people who neglect Hashem's will, I don't want them in my midst. Let them daven somewhere else. The people who are struggling with their observance, struggling with their identity, struggling with their inspiration, struggling with what it means to be a Jew, struggling with living in the 21st century with the cultural confusion, let them go somewhere else. I only want to daven in a minion of righteous. Comes along the ketoras, the incense, and it says, no, the chalban is included. All of the ingredients are included. Even those that stink, even though that stink to high heaven, even those that are unpleasant, but they will be overwhelmed by the positive. And they too have a place. Their machatzis shekel belongs in our collection as well. Then we have the designation of Betzalel and Aliyav, who are going to be the architects of the, uh, of the Mishkan. Again, it's peculiar. We already had Shuma, we already had Tetzave, only now in Kisisa are they appointed. Okay. And then we have Shabbos. Taber ben Yisrael. Ach eshab sosai tishmoru. We discussed this in the past. It was one of the Parsha classes a few years ago. You could listen. Why in the plural? Shab sosai tishmoru. What do you mean? We observe one Shabbos at a time. How many Shabbos do we have? And the answer is, the Mephoshim explained, the Ksav Sofer and others, intrinsic within every Shabbos is two Shabbosim. There's the physical resting, the fact that we are physically at peace with nature. We're not trying to manipulate it. We're not trying to conquer it. We're not trying to be able to show sovereignty over it. We're at peace with nature. We're not trying to control electricity. We're not planting and harvesting. We're not trying to... to to uh, weed out or to cook or to bake. We're at peace with the natural world around us. There's the physical resting. But the goal of the physical resting is to spiritually rejuvenate. 
There's a second Shabbos. The Shabbos of, you know, Shabbos does two things. Last, last, I think it was last Shabbos, there was a Jewish group that tried to promote, and it was picked up by every uh, news organization and magazines like Vogue magazine, not, not because I read the magazine, but someone sent me the link, that, um, that uh, last Shabbos was designated, last weekend was 24 hours to disconnect. They tried to get celebrities, they tried to get everybody. What was the idea from Friday night, sundown Friday till sundown Shabbos? It was a Jewish group trying to take the gift of Shabbos and share it with the world. So Shabbos does two things. We disconnect to connect. So physically you disconnect, that's one Shabbos. But then you have to do the other thing. In other words, if you disconnect from electricity, you disconnect from all the tasks and obligations and things you have to do, and what do you do instead? You schluff for 18 hours straight. You stuff your face for 18 hours straight. If that's all Shabbos means to you, the disconnecting hasn't led to connecting. The goal of disconnect is to connect. You're liberated from all the things that you normally have to do. I, I've often repeated the mushal that my mother once uh, shared with me and can appreciate for those up north, appreciate. Shabbos is the weekly snow day. The gift of a snow day is no matter how much you have to do, no matter how much is on your plate, no matter how many errands you have to run, how much is waiting for you at your desk at work, how much there is to accomplish, you're liberated and there's nothing you can do. It's guilt-free. There's nothing you can do and it's guilt-free. We get that once a week, there's a snow day, a Shabbos day. Guilt-free liberation from whatever it is that you thought you had to do, which is why Shabbos is Zechi Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was all about being liberated from that which enslaved us. And Shabbos, unless you're a rabbi, is all about being liberated, <coughs> being liberated from that which enslaves us. So as Shabbososai Tishmoru, Ksav Sofer says, there's two Shabboses each week. There's the Shabbos of disconnect, but then there's also the Shabbos of connect. Connect to family, to friends, to divrei Torah, to learning, to rejuvenating, to mindfulness. Disconnect and connect. Ach as Shabbososai Tishmoru. Kiosi. It's a sign. Shmartem as a Shabbos, observe Shabbos. Of course, famously it was said, more than the Jews have kept Shabbos, Shabbos has kept the Jews. V'sham Rebbe Yisrael says Shabbos. You have to be Shomer Shabbos. What does it mean? Go back to Bereshis. We saw the, the great, I don't know if we saw it here, I mentioned it in another class, Rabbi J.J. Schachter pointed it out. The Oiv Yisrael, the Aptorov of Avram Yeshua Heschel, the great Aptorov, the Aptor Rebbe, and the Sefer Oiv Yisrael points out when it says Va'aviv Shamaris Hadavar, that when Yosef was missing, it was reported to Yaakov that Yosef was missing. Pasuk says Va'aviv Shamaris Hadavar, that Yaakov was Shamar. What does Shamaris Hadavar mean? It means the Mefarshim explain Yaakov waited with great anticipation, with great excitement. He longed for, and he waited for, and he anticipated when Yosef would come, when Yosef would return. So that root, Shin Mem Re, Shamar, Aviv Shamar Sadavar, means to anticipate, to wait, to look. Says the Aptorov, Ravavim Yeshua Heshel, the O of Yisrael, then Vishamru Vene Yisrael Sashabbos, if you apply that definition of Shin Mem Re, Vishamru Vene Yisrael Sashabbos means to all week long wait for and look forward to and long for Shabbos. What does it mean, says the O of Yisrael, to be a Shomer Shabbos? The definition of a Shomer Shabbos is not how you spend Friday night and Saturday. The definition then of a Shomer Shabbos is how you spend Sunday through Friday. 
Do you wait? Ach, oh, it's Shabbos. Ach, oh, who wants to cook for Shabbos? And who wants to disconnect on Shabbos? And the burden of Shabbos? And who needs Shabbos? Then you're not Shomer Shabbos. I don't care how vigilant you are. You keep Shmir Shabbos, Kilchasa, even the footnotes. I don't care. If Sunday through Friday you're miserable about Shabbos, you're not Shomer Shabbos. Says the Abdurav, to be a Shomer Shabbos like Aviv Shamar Sadavar is to wait longingly. To be excited, to anticipate, like the Gemara's famous Machlokas, Beshamai Beisilo. When you come across a great piece of meat, do you eat it that day? Baruch Hashem Yom Yom. Or do you say, this is for Shabbos? So it's a Machlokas, Beshamai Beisilo. But the common denominator of both is that when you see that great piece of meat, you're thinking about Shabbos. Which is exactly how we count the days of the week. To be a Shomer Shabbos means there's no such thing as Tuesday. What's today? Yom Shlishi. What does it mean to be Yom Shlishi? Day three. Day three from what? Day three to what? Yom Shlishi? Shabbos. In other words, our entire lives revolve around Shabbos. Shabbos is the axis through which our entire lives revolve around. It's actually, there's a peak in a valley. There's Shabbos. You, you count up to Shabbos. When do we start counting towards Shabbos? Wednesday morning. At the very end of Shir Shalyom, we tack on... We start Kabbalah Shabbos on Wednesday morning. It's a long Kabbalah Shabbos. Long Kabbalah Shabbos. From Wednesday morning till Shabbos, we're already in... Oh, it's Wednesday? You could already start to say a good Nair of Shabbos. You could already start to say a good Shabbos. In fact, I was... Uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was visiting someone in Sloan Kettering Hospital. And to tell you how many from Jews are in Sloan Kettering Hospital, they should all have a speedy and complete Rekufur Shlema. It's amazing. I, I was visiting... And the whole floor was from Jews, Hasidic Jews. So I asked the person I was visiting, do Jews, Khalil, have a disproportionate amount of cancer? Why is this whole place from Jews here in Sloan Kettering? So the answer was fascinating. It's not Jews have the same proportion of getting cancer. Just Jews aren't satisfied going to the local doctor and hospital. They all use connections to get into Sloan Kettering. So that's why the whole hospital is made up. So I'm leaving, and this African-American nurse, as I'm walking out, she says to me, have a good Shabbos. I learned that as of Wednesday, I'm allowed to say that to you. <laughs> so, the African-American nurse in Sloan Kettering knows, she said, She said, it's Wednesday, I could already say good Shabbos. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, boom, the peak, the top is Shabbos. Shabbos ends, and how long are we still drawing the energy of that Shabbos? How long does that previous Shabbos, the rejuvenation, the mindfulness, how long, the connection, how long does it last? How long do you have to say Havdalah? If you missed Havdalah, Motzei Shabbos. Somehow you missed it Sunday. Somehow you slept through Monday. How long do you have to say Havdalah? Till Tuesday. So you see that from Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbos, you still come down from Shabbos, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. The whole week is all about Shabbos counting to Shabbos, continuing to draw from Shabbos. And just Tuesday, when your battery from last Shabbos is on empty, all of a sudden comes Wednesday. L'chunaranana, I get an Erev Shabbos. It's all of a sudden Erev Shabbos. Says the Abderav, to be a Shomer Shabbos is not about how you spend Friday night Shabbos. To be a Shomer Shabbos is how you spend the rest of the week. Does your life revolve around Shabbos? Are you counting towards Shabbos? The Ramban has a similar comment when he talks about... about uh, Shamor Vizachar, when he talks about, about Kiddush, the Ramban says it's not just about the Kiddush you make Friday night, it's about the whole week long thinking about Shabbos. But I told you we're not going to talk about this, it's on the previous year. This after Rav, we didn't.
Lapterov is new. That's not on the recording from a few years ago. Okay. Moshe receives the Luchos. Shnei Luchos Ha'idus, Luchos Evan Ksuvim Be'etzpa Elokim. The first set of Luchos, miraculous. Kodesh Baruch carved not only the Aseris Adibros, the Decalogue, and not only did he, did he carve all of mitzvos. Kodesh carved Torah Shabbat Peh onto the first set of Luchos. They were miraculous. They were miraculous, which is why when Hashem withdrew his Shechina, they were so heavy. There's a machlokas. Did Moshe throw them? Did Moshe drop them? There's a machlokas about everything. Did Moshe throw them down and smash them? Or did they all of a sudden become so heavy when they were spiritual, when they had the Shechina? They were miraculous. They were light. It was a miracle. They, they lifted. They were like nothing. All of a sudden, Hashem withdrew his Shechina. They became incredibly... You know, when someone else is holding the thing with you, it's very light for you. But when they let go of their end, all of a sudden it becomes so heavy that Moshe, Hashem let go of his end of the luchos, and he was bearing the majority of the weight. All of a sudden they became heavy, and Moshe, and Moshe dropped them. Moshe comes down the mountain, and what does he find? He finds the people building the golden calf. We've discussed this in the past. We're really not getting into this now. The great mystery. How could a people, the Dordea, who had experienced unparalleled, unprecedented revelation... How could they build a golden calf? It's the wedding night. They have an incredible romantic courtship. And then you stand under the chuppah and you offer vows to one another. And you pledge your love and you experience a wedding. And you go back to the hotel that night and the husband goes to get ice from the ice bucket and the next thing you know, he's in the room of another woman. On the wedding night, after the chuppah and the party and the romance and the celebration, this is Klai Yisrael. Kodesh Baruch Hu held the mountain over our heads. It was a chuppah. We stood at the wedding with Hashem. We had a romantic courtship where Hashem could not have been more gracious and giving to us through miracles and miracles and miracles. And on the wedding night, we're waiting for Moshe. And what happens? Chet <laughs> It's astounding. It's lo yuman. You can't believe what happens. So what exactly went on? We've discussed the Kuzari and the Beis Alevi and the Meshachachma. You could listen to this online. I'm not repeating it. What really went on, it's not what it seems. The Echeta ego, ego was not an idol and they weren't worshipping it. It was something altogether different. It was a need the Jewish people had, a craving they had that was satisfied by something physical, which also explains Moshe telling Hashem, forgive them or erase me from the book. Again, we've discussed all of this in the past. I'm not going into it. You could listen online. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu, understandably, reacts with tremendous anger. Lech Raid. He says to Moshe, you're not going to believe what's happened. Look at the security camera. Look what's going on down there. Quickly, get out of here. You got to get down there. Your people that I proposed to, that I gave a ring to, that I took out of Egypt. You know how many gifts I gave them? Dam, Tzvardea, Kinim, Arov, Kriyas Yamsuf, and your people. Hashem, Elisa Meretz Mitzrayim. You think Hashem has a little bitterness or wants us to perceive that He has a little bitterness? Could have just said, the people are sinning. Your people that I took out of Egypt. Quick. Saru Maherim and Haderach Hashem Quick, you got to get down there. And of course, the other mystery. How could Aaron Cohen participate? Where was he to protest? Chur protests cost him his life. Aaron seems to participate. What exactly was going on there? Is Aaron accountable for that? 
Kosh Baruch Hu says, Vayom Hashem HaMoshem, on top of page 496, This is an incorrigible people. I can't believe it. Maybe I miscalculated. Maybe this whole thing was a mistake. Stubborn, obstinate, incorrigible. I can't deal with them. That's it. I'm done. I'm destroying them. What a stubborn, miserable, obstinate, complaining, negative people. Forget about it. So Moshe pleads with Hashem. Why? Moshe too invokes the fact that we left Egypt. Why is Moshe invoking it? Because Moshe's argument to Hashem is, why did you take us out of Egypt the way you did? Well, Hashem, you already told us why. It was a curriculum. It was an educational process for the Jews, for the Egyptians, for the world, and for eternity. To look back and say, Hashem is the source of nature. Hashem controls and manipulates nature. There's such a thing called divine providence that you are the source of all that exists. That's why you took us out. Well, if that's why you took us out, and now you're going to destroy the Jewish people who were the subject of your curriculum, what are they going to say? You're going to undo the lesson that you taught. Everyone's going to say, God is not creating this special people because He wants to teach the world how to act. God took them out to kill them. So therefore, Moshe says, Remember the Avos and Hashem Hashem reconsidered regarding this pledge to destroy the people first of all how could he have this pledge to destroy the people what happened to the bris he made but okay not for now so Vaifan Vayered Moshe Moshe Taka comes down he's got the Luchos Aluchos Masael Okimhema as we said they're the wonder of God the Gemara tells us for example the Samach and the Mem Sofit they were suspended in the middle of the carving. And yet they didn't fall out. A samach and a mem sofit. There's nothing to hold it in place with the rest of the stone. Masa elokim This was the carving. Hamichtav, michtav elokimu. Charus ala luchos. Engraved on, onto the luchos. Moshe comes down. Of course he smashes again. Did he throw them? Did he drop them? What's the nafkamina? Not for now. Then Moshe turns to Hashem and he davens on their, he davens on their behalf. And that's the part that we're going to see in a second. But Moshe pleads with Hashem, Make your ways known to me so that I know you, so I can find favor in your eyes. Show me your glory. Moshe is saying to Hashem, Let me understand your ways. I want to understand what's going on here. And what's Hashem's response? He doesn't just say no. I would understand that the Rebona Shalom declines says, I'm sorry, you can't have the password. I'm sorry, you can't see, you don't know. I'm infinite, you're finite. I'm omnipotent, you're limited. No, but Hashem doesn't answer that. He says something a little peculiar and mysterious. says, Hashem, you cannot see my face, for no human can see my face and live. There's a place near me, stand on the rock. When I pass by, I'll shield you with my hand until I pass. And when I remove my hand, you'll see my back, but my face may not be seen. You can't see my face. What in the world was Hashem saying to Moshe? So the Gemara in Baruch Zayin Amad Aleph explains, Moshe, when he said, 
Moshe was saying, I want to understand why do bad things happen to good people. I want to understand. Show me your face. What does it mean, show me your face? means, let me see the world through your eyes. Let me understand your calculations. Why would a child have cancer? Why would a natural disaster kill people? Why would you deny people finding their mate or having a baby? Why would you put people through such hardship? Why the human suffering, whether on the magnitude of the Holocaust or whether it's really the very same question on the magnitude of a little child? I had a professor, a visiting professor at Yeshiva University who uh, famously wrote a book arguing that the Holocaust was a unique event in human history. Its magnitude made it unlike anything else which ever occurred. And I had the chutzpah as a young college student. I was arguing with him on this exact point. I'm not talking historically, whether historically anything is comparable, but philosophically, from the perspective of why do bad things happen to good people, is there really a question, is there really a difference between the question of six million or one? Why should one child, an innocent, pure child, who has nothing wrong, no blemish, no contamination, no poor judgment, who is not responsible for their actions, that child suffers and suffers and suffers. Go to the halls of Sloan Kettering and the cries that you hear and the suffering you witness, which is almost harder on the parents for whom those cries are indelibly impressed in their ears than the please God the children who will recover and move on with their childhood and not even remember what happened. But is there really a difference between the magnitude or even the, the one? The question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Tzadik Varalo. So Moshe says, let me see your face. Let me see the world the way you see. I want to understand it. And what's a Kaddish Baruch Hu's response? You can't see my face. No human being can. Why does he emphasize human being? Because his point is, that's why I'm God and you are not. I run the world in a way you can't comprehend. You know, if your three-year-old says, I want to understand why I can't put my finger in the outlet, why I can't run the street. You say, look, I, I can try to explain it to you, but you, you won't understand. There are things that, as a parent, we prevent or consequences we give you because I'm trying to teach you something, but you're not capable right now of understanding it. You just have to trust me that I have your best interest in mind. Kirsh is our parent. He's omnipotent. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. He is singular, he is unique. We can't even describe what he is. We just know what he's not. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. And a Kurdish Baruch who interacts with us in ways that are painful sometimes, but we're not capable of understanding them. We're not God. And that's what Hashem is telling Moshe. You're human. You can't see through my eyes. And anyone, I will add, not just recently, anyone throughout Jewish history who claims to speak for God and to explain why God brought the Holocaust and why God makes kids die in a fire and why God gives this one cancer and why God gave that one autism and why anyone who claims to talk for God is a heretic. Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't do it. The great Moshe Rabbeinu, one of the Yud Gimelikarim, is to believe that Moshe is singular and unique. He's a Navi like none other. And yet Moshe asked Hashem, can I speak for you? I'd like to represent you in explaining why you make bad things happen to good people. And Hashem says, thank you, but no thank you. No one can speak on my behalf. No one can understand my ways because you're finite, I'm infinite. No human being can see and understand. But Hashem tells Moshe, but I'll tell you what, stand here, Stand here, 
and you could see the back of my head. Says the Gemara, what does it mean you could see the back of my head? It means that sometimes, after the fact, you could string together a series of events to understand why they happened that way. What they yielded. The good that came from it. Even if in each moment, you can't understand it. Sometimes when you see retroactively, sometimes when you use the gift of being retrospective, you could string it together to understand. The Chidush Arim says an incredible insight about Purim. It's not even Shushan Purim, but I'll get you ready for next Purim. Says the Chidush Arim. <clears throat> says the Chidush Arim. Imagine somebody walks in the base medrash and they say, give a clap. Guess what? Vashti refused the king and she's being put to death. The Bacharim say, what do we care? Why are you distracting us from the learning? We gotta get back to learning. Next day they give a clap. You won't believe it, Esther was chosen as queen. Oh, okay, that, what do we care? We're learning right now. They give a clap. We read in the news that Mordechai uncovered the plot to kill the king. Okay, okay, who cares? Guess what? They give a clap. Each of these things, they come into the base measures, they give a clap. You're not going to believe it this, you're not going to believe it that, you're not going to believe it the other thing. Says the Chidush Arim, the Bacharim learning Torah said, we don't follow the news. What do we care about the news? We're learning Torah. This is what matters to us. Okay, this event, that event, the third event, the tenth event. Why do you keep disrupting us? Why do you keep interrupting? But only after the fact, says the Chidush Arim, did they realize that each of those unique events added up to a storyline, a narrative, which resulted in the miracle of Purim. When you look at each event isolation, you can't understand it. But when you string them together, the picture becomes clear. The Chidush Arim says something amazing, the Ger Rebbe. He says, as we live through our contemporary events, a Jew should follow the news. Because a Jew needs to understand that everything going on in the world is not an isolated event. It's not something of insignificance to us. These isolated events string together. They create realities. They create realities. You know, World War I, World War II, each began with an insignificant isolated event. Amazing events. And so we should not say, don't interrupt me, don't disrupt me. We need to study the world because when do you see Hashem's hand, says the Chidush Arim? The, uh, the obligation of reading the Megillah is an obligation of being retrospective, of looking back at what seem isolated, disconnected coincidences and our responsibility as Jews is to string them together and to weave a storyline that reveals the Yad Hashem. We can't always see Hashem, we can't never see Hashem's face. We don't understand why things happen as they happen, but after the fact, we can string it together sometimes, if we're fortunate enough, we can string together and try to understand why things are happening the way they're happening. Okay, there's a lot more to say on that subject, but we got to get to the Parsha. So, Moshe Davins. The aftermath of the golden calf, Moshe pleads for Akash Baruch Hu to return. And Hashem invites Moshe for the second set of luchos and reveals his 13 attributes. This is what we're going to study. And the uh, promise and the renewal of the covenant. It's restored the 40 days and 40 nights. Moshe comes down from the mountain. His face is now radiating. Moshe carries with him the Karne Hod. He's got these, uh, the Kikaran Or, the Karne Hod. It's got these beams of light protruding that came from the leftover ink. Where did this leftover ink come from? A lot to talk about. Go to page 506. Now we're going to get into the Pesukim. 506, Perak Lamed Dalad, Pasuk Aleph. Chapter 34, verse number 1. And the reason I chose this today is it's familiar to us. We read this on fast days. We might as well know what we're talking about. We read it so often. Not to mention the slichos and so on. 
ויאמר השם למשה, פסול לך שני לוחות אבנים כראשונים, וחשפתי על הלוחות את הדברים אשר היו על הלוחות הראשונים אשר שיברת. השם says, call for yourself two stones, like the first ones, and I'll inscribe on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you shattered. ויהיה נכון לבוקר ועליסה בבוקר להר סיני, וניצבת לי שם על ראש ההר. And then be prepared in the morning, because I want you coming back on top of the mountain, and stand with me there on the mountain. But this time we're going to do it differently. Instead of two to three million people around the base of the mountain, instead of last, uh, the sound and light show, thunder and lightning, there will be no band, there's no photographer, there's no flowers, there's no shmurg. This chuppah is going to be different. Just you and I come on the mountain, no one else. Not even the flock and cattle should be grazing near the mountain. Just us. Nobody else. So Moshe carved out two stones like the first ones. He got up early in the morning, he went on the mountain, he took these two stones in his hand. Hashem descended in the cloud and he stood there with him and he called out with the name of Hashem. There's a lot of pronouns here, which we're going to see in a moment. What are these pronouns? Who stood, who covered, who called out, to whom did he call? All these pronouns, who's talking to whom? And Hashem then passed before him, and he called out, The 13 attributes that describe Hashem, and Moshe, Hashem gives Moshe the secret code. If I ever, if your people act incorrigible again, and I again threaten to destroy them, when you see that you've aggravated me, here's what to say to me to appease me. Here's when you say this to me, I can't be angry at you anymore. When you say this to me, you've touched a place in my heart that I have to be forgiving, and he gave us this code. Which is a bizarre thing. In fact, maybe we'll skip to this before we even go back to the psukim. It's a very, very bizarre thing. The Jewish people act inappropriately. They violate the will of the Almighty. Is the Almighty so shallow that all you have to do is say, Hashem, did I mention you look so pretty today? Did I tell you how good you... Did you lose weight, Hashem? You look so good lately. You're kind, you're merciful, you're good, you're slow to anger, you're forgiving. Are we good now? We're good? Everything's all good? Hashem says everything's all good. We're good. Is Hashem so shallow? All we have to do, carry around in your, in your phone, carry in your wallet, Yud Gimomidos, just recite this formula, and Hashem says we're good. We're good. Of course not. Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, Dafid Zayin Amad the Gemara tells us, which is the origin of reciting this formula. And I'm getting older because. Wow. We're getting there. Okay. We're getting there. Hold on. Just a second. I want to read to you the Lushan of the Gemara. Here it is. Had the Pasuk not said it, we could not even suggest it. 
That Hashem put on a talus like a shliach tzibur, the herolo lemoshe seder tefila, and he taught him this yud gimel midos, the thirteen attributes. Amar lo said Hashem to Moshe, "Kozmanshi Yisrael chotem yase lefanai keseder azev ani mochel lahem." So first of all, points out Rabbi Salavechik, when Hashem, the Gemara Chazal tell us, when Hashem wants to take on the image of a shliach tzibur, what does he do? Misatef Hashem keshliach tzibur. Kosh Baruch Hu puts on a talus. Misatef is the language. He wraps himself in a talus like a shliach tzibur, and he taught us. Why does Hashem wear a talus? Does Hashem need a talus? Talat kanfos? What kind of talus? Said the Rav. Why is Hashem wearing a talus? A talus is the uniform of a shliach tzibur. To be called the shliach tzibur. It's not just that you're standing at the shtender. It's that you are wearing the uniform. You're anointed with the uniform of the Shliach Tzibur. That's why when Hashem wants to give the image of a Shliach Tzibur, it's Nesatif, he's wearing a talus. So the Rav concluded, and that's the practice of our shul, that the Shliach Tzibur doesn't just wear a talus at Shachras and at Mincha. He wears a talus when? At Marev. Why? Not because it's Zman Tzitzis. Forget, you know, Chovas, uh, is it Chovas Agavra? Is it Chovas Mana? Forget the... Chakir and talus. But light, nighttime is not the time of a talus. So why would the Shliach Tzibur wear a talus? Because it's not a din in Sitzis. When the Shliach Tzibur wears a talus, it's not a din in Sitzis. It's a din in being a Shliach Tzibur. Kirsh Baruch Hu also didn't need to fulfill the mitzvah of Sitzis. But yet, when he wants to teach Moshe, Nisatev HaKadosh Baruch Hu kish Shliach Tzibur. How do you have the image of a Shliach Tzibur? Only when you're wearing a talus. I know that a lot of more Hamish uh, Hasidish Menagim is Sheikh Tzibur doesn't wear a talus. I always feel it's like the Sheikh Tzibur is naked. You're like davening in a shul. He's up there leading Mincha. There's no talus. Why is that guy up? Where's his talus? Who's the Sheikh Tzibur here? Nisatif Akadish Baruch Hu Kishliach Tzibur. So the Rav's practice, our practice is, even at Marev, you see this also, the Mishnabura quotes, that when you begin Slichos, Bashmoras Haboker, let's say someone's leading Slichos at night, you're saying Slichos the proper time. Chatzos, 1 a.m. We always call it for 1 a.m., even though Chatzos is usually like 1.12. I'll tell you the little secret, but you'll forget by Elo. So, <laughs> 1 a.m. here, it's so late. Does the Shlech Tzibur wear a talus for Slichos? Mishra says, yes. Now you might think, why? Because this is the makor of Slichos. The Yud Gimel Midos, the Zatev Hashem Kishlech Tzibur, and he gave us the Yud Gimel Midos, he gave us Slichos. But it's not just for Slichos. It's anytime someone is serving in the capacity of Shlech Tzibur, you put on a talus. So Zog the Maral comes along the Maral and he says, notice, he asks our question. What, he just simply say the formula and all is forgotten? Is Hashem really so shallow? We have to flatter him. We highlight what makes him great and he just can't help but forgive us? Says the Maral, Rabbi Yudaloi, no. Maral on this Gemara, Roshani Yudzayin Amadez. He says, pay close attention. The Gemara does not say... Imru lefanai kaseder hazeh. What does the Gemara say? Yasu lefanai kaseder hazeh. We mistranslate it. Say the formula before me. Hashem says, I can't help but forgive you. That's not what the Gemara says. Yasu lefanai. What does Yasu mean? Perform. Imitate these qualities, and I can't help but forgive you. According to Maral, it turns the whole thing on its head. Slichos, fast days, slichos, is not just about reciting some formula. We repeat the formula over and over and over 
to remind ourselves to imitate that formula, to be like God in those ways, to follow exactly in those footsteps. What it means to be a mensch, what it means to be forgiving, what it means to be interpersonal. When we're like Hashem in these ways, these Yud Gimomidos, then Hashem is forgiving of us. So I'll tell you very quickly, because we have to get back and really start the Parsha class. <laughs> I'd really like to get into these Psukim. But uh, you know, one of the more famous Hasidish stories everybody knows, it's Rav Moshe Leib Sosavar and Yankel the Misnagid, who was visiting Sosav during the Yom Naraim, when the Jews wake up before dawn to recite Slichos, when Yankel came to the Shtibol, he noticed that the Rebbe, Rav Moshe Leib, arrived after Slichos had concluded. So he came up to the Rebbe's followers and he says, your Rebbe is such a tzaddik, he's so great. He's so great. He missed Slichos. He came late. So the Hasidim said, no, 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 you don't understand. Our Rebbe Taki is so great. And the reason he was so late and he missed Slichos is because rather than say it here with us, he ascended on high. He went into the heavens to pray on behalf of the Jewish people. He wasn't here with us mere mortals. You didn't see him because he was on high. So Yankel, the skeptic, the cynic, is dissatisfied. He laughs at the Hasidim for having that ridiculous belief. He thinks lowly of the great Rebbe, Rebbe Moshe Leib and he decides he's going to expose the Rebbe. So the next day, he goes and he hides outside the Rebbe's house and to be able to follow, to see where is he? What is he really doing? Why is he late to Slichus? He must be at Starbucks, he must be at Dunkin' Donuts, he's having his morning joe, he's really a fraud, why is he late? So Yankel hears Rav Moshe Leib wake up, leave the house, he doesn't recognize him. The Sosavar is dressed like a peasant. He walks into the woods, you all know the story, he takes out the axe, he chops the tree into firewood, he takes the bundle, he walks out of the forest, he knocks on the door of a run-down old house, an elderly woman answers and lets him in, and pretending to be a peasant, the Rebbe explains he brought the woman firewood so she could have a warm house. He brought her food. And when the woman says she has no money to pay, the great Rebbe, the Sosavar, says, it's not a problem, we'll put it on an account. You'll pay me when you have the money. And Yankel, who's hiding behind the bushes, watches all this transpire from the darkness of night. And when the woman says she was not strong enough to light the fire, Moshe Leib Sosavar, dressed as the peasant, puts the wood into the furnace and bends and crouches down and as he's lighting the fire, Yankel overhears the Rebbe as he places each piece of wood and as he lights it on fire. Hashem, Hashem, Kelrachom, Vechanon. He's saying the Yud Gimomidos. So Yankel can't believe what he sees. Wow, this is why the great Rebbe was in fact late. He runs back to the Shtibol and the Hasidim see him and they say, No, what did you see? What did you find? And Yankel answers them that in fact I saw the Rebbe ascends on high into the heavens. I saw that in fact he's in the heavens, if not higher. So the Yud Gimel Midos, Yasu Lefanai. Yasu Lefanai. It's not Imru Lefanai. Don't just say these things and then go be dishonest in business and speak Lashon Hara and leave this one out of your Mahjong game and don't invite that one to the Shabbos meal and the Purim Suda and Rebbe. You can't just say the Yud Gimomidos and then go back to being the same lowlife and think that Hashem is going to forgive you. It's not Imru Lefanai, it's Yasu Lefanai, and only when Yasu Lefanai, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu forgives us. So what are these Yud Gimomidos? Let's look at the parsha a little bit. Oy, was there so much to talk about. <coughs> so we mentioned, look at uh, Pasa Gimel, 
Rashi. The first luchos were given with pop and circumstance and fanfare, lightning and thunder and sound. And the second one, Moshe, I want you alone, nobody else. I don't even want the animals grazing in the vicinity. Says Rashi, Kashbach realizes, you know why it all went wrong the first time? Because I was trying to communicate and educate to the world by having all the pomp and circumstance, by having this great stage and platform. But you know what happened? Ayin Ra. When you attract attention, it attracts the Ayin Hara. And when people peer with their Ayin Hara, which we've explained before according to the Maral, is not some mystical heebie-jeebie Ayin Hara. They look at you and the red bendel will ward it off. And if they look at you... Ayin Hara works that when you attract the attention of others... And they look with a jealous and envious eye. And the jealous and envious eye for the Maharal turns into a form of prayer. Say to Hashem, why do they have such a big, beautiful house? They're not nearly as righteous as I am. They, they talk Lashon, they're late to shul, they don't pay the taxes. And they you reward with shalom bias and nachas from the children in the big house. When you're flashy and ostentatious and you attract attention, it makes other people turn to Hashem and say, they're not so great. What, what's going on over here? I deserve it more. And Hashem says, you know what? Bring me their file. Taka, that's a good point. I wasn't paying attention, but you know what? They're not so great. So if we want to get away with all the goodness that we have, if we're undeserving, then keep it under the radar. Keep it under the radar. There's nothing wrong with enjoying beautiful things. There's nothing wrong with elegance and quality. But keep it under the radar. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself says, the wedding, the first wedding I made was over the top. And because it was over the top, Ayin Hara, and look what happened. The Egel, the smashing of the Luchos. So you know what? The second wedding, we're going to do it quietly. It's just me and you. In order to avoid the Ayin Hara. We have a Gemara says that that blessing can only reside in that which is hidden from the eye. I gave a drasha two weeks ago at the, the Parochas. The goal, the Rav said, the reason that you have a Parochas is there has to be a Kodesh HaKadoshim. The most intimate, the holiest, the most precious things we have are not on public display. They're not exposed to the world. What makes them precious, Kodesh HaKadoshim, is there's a parochas, dividing. It's private. There's such a concept as privacy. You know, with social media, there's nothing private in it. Everybody airs everything publicly. Everything public. I mean, it's cute. So, okay, so I saw what everyone's Purim costumes were this year. Fine. Everyone put the picture on Facebook of what their family wore on Purim. It's cute. It's adorable. It connects us all. Nothing wrong with that. But now you start, you know, just sharing your most, p- pledging your love to your spouse, the anniversary, the birth, love, uh, every feeling, every emotion, every reaction. There's nothing private. There's no Kodesh HaKadoshim. She'll kill me for saying this, but both of our parents are here, so I'll, I'll say it anyway. The, when I first went out with my wife, we dated for a significant amount of time, and then we broke up, or AKA she dumped me, and, <laughs> and we were apart. It's a story I'm happy to share with you any other time. But we were, we were broken up for, for six weeks and we got back together. It's a great story, but for another time. When we got back together, she's the one, you taught her a lot, she's the one who said to me, you know what, the first time we went out, everybody knew about it, siblings, parents, friends, everybody had an opinion about it, everybody was trying to exert their influence on it, everybody was telling everybody what to do. It wasn't good. She quoted this chazal, Eina bracha shari el bedavar asamo 
Let's keep this under the radar. So our dates consisted of babysitting for my niece in Riverdale and telling my sister and brother-in-law, you go out, we'll babysit. Just quiet. Don't worry, we left the door open a little bit. Don't worry, there's no problem. <laughs> so, quiet. Under the radar. Under the radar, you want bracha. So even HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself experienced this. The first wedding, Harsinai, Matan Torah, over the top. Too many pieces in the band. Second wedding was a lot quieter. Ishlo Imach. And therefore the bracha can be sharoi, and that was lasting. The second set of luchos lasted. They were whole, they were complete. They continued to have their influence. Says the Ramban, Pasa Gimel, Ish lo yalei imach, shilo yalu imcha klal ziknei Yisrael, kashu asu beluchas harishonos. When the first luchos, the ziknei Yisrael, the elders, the wise, the sages, also partially went up the mountain. V'gam isha yirah b'chol ahar, gam b'tachti sahar makom ma'amad Yisrael b'rishona. So I don't want anyone going up with you. I don't want anyone on the base of the mountain with you. I don't want anyone around. This is all you. All you. Says the Ibn Ezra, Ish pavush Allah aron abon of imo achar ma'amad asina v'yeridi ma'am. Gam alov amad shama pa'am arishona. Okay. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Said Rabbi Salavechik, I'm reading to you from the Rav Chumash. Psol Lecha. Here, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe, first set of tablets, Masa Elohim They were on me. I carved them, I did the heavy lifting, literally and figuratively, I did the work. Now, Psol Lecha. It's your turn. Said the Rav, in regard to Torah Shebechsav, the written law, Moshe acted as a messenger of God to give to Israel. Had Israel at Mount Sinai desired to hear the Torah from God himself, instead of asking Moshe, it would have been given to Israel directly. There'd be no need for Moshe to act as a messenger. In this sense, Moshe's portion in Torah Shebechsav was no greater than any other Jews. Torah Shebechsav, however, was given to Moshe. Psal lecha. You it for yourself. Who in turn imparted it to Israel as a Rebbe. When a Rebbe imparts Torah to a student, he's not merely a messenger of the Almighty, he's the owner of that Torah bestowing his greatness upon the student. Moshe owned the Torah, Torah Shabbat his property. The rights of an owner, Das Machne, were assigned to him. The phrase, like the first one, recurs numerous times in the narrative. This phrase implies the renewal of God's original relationship with Israel. The first set of tablets did not have any greater sanctity than the second. The process of repentance in Israel is such, it's possible that one who sinned grievously only yesterday will arise to an even higher level than he was before the sin. And then the Rav comments on the words, Va'alisa baboker al-har sinai. Why does Hashem describe to Moshe, ascend? Now obviously because he's going up on a mountain. But the Rav sees more significance. Said the Rav, ascend, listen to what he says, beautiful. Chait occurs, sin occurs, when man becomes an object. When he changes from a gavra to a chefza. When he's transformed from a creator to a victim. The simplest verb which denote the dichotomy between a subject and an object are those of ascent and descent. Ascent involves an act of overcoming the force of gravity, while descent involves succumbing to this force. Gravity is a force that is not characteristic of personality. It is characteristic of objects, things. If a person loses his dynamic, subjective existence and cannot counteract various forces which tend to pull him downward, he's acting as an object. So the Rav goes on here, but he describes... When we see ourselves as a victim, that we don't have autonomy, that we're not making choices, then we're an object, like gravity. That's why you describe someone as falling. They fell into sin, they fell into a bad situation, they fell. Gravity asserts its influence on them, 
Because that person has forfeited their humanity, they become a chefza rather than a gavra. A gavra is a, per- is a subject. A subject makes choices. A subject can defy gravity. A subject can climb. And that's why you talk about somebody who's improving, who's growing, is going higher and higher. It's not a coincidence, says the Rav, that we use these terms in the vernacular. To fall, to climb, to go higher, to go lower. Because it's the difference between seeing ourselves as a subject and as an object. And that's why it's Ve'alisa, that Moshe, uh, Moshe goes up. He is defying gravity by helping the people overcome their sin. <clears throat> the um, one last thing is a beautiful new uh, parish that came out from my Rebbe it's called Rav Shechter on the Parsha Insights and Commentary based on the Shiurim of Rav, she- of Rav Herschel Shechter it's adapted by Dr. Alan Weissman and I remember these Parsha Shiurim he collected the Shiurim of Rav Shechter and, uh, and put them together so here on our Parsha he says the following our Parsha describes a major difference between the first Luchos and the second the first time Moshe ascended to receive the luchos, he didn't take any material with him. The luchos are described as being made of stone, but they were formed from a heavenly material. With the second luchos, it's Carve for yourself. Moshe was to ascend with stone luchos from this world to serve as the substance upon which Hashem would engrave the Aseris Adibros. The Beis HaLevi expand on the difference, citing Midrashim that explain that not only the Aseris Adibros, Kola Torah Kula, the entire Torah, including what is now Torah Shabbat Peh, was miraculously engraved on the first Luchos. The engraved script of the second Luchos, however, was limited to Aseris Adibros themselves. The Pasuk cited above, Kasafti al-Luchos, Asher Shibarta, at the time that you shattered them, the additional letters and words on the first luchos that comprised the entire corpus of the Torah flew into the air at the time of Chet Egel. All that remained at the time they were smashed were the letters of Aseris Adibros, and only these letters were later engraved on the second luchos. So, the Beis HaLevi talks about the uh, notion of the Torah Shabbat and the Torah Shabbat The first set of luchos had everything engraved, Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, spoon-fed us the entire Torah. The second set of luchos only had the Aseris Adibros. The Torah Shabbat Peh remained for us to study and to learn. He went on, and Rav Shechter quotes uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik as talking about the fact that this was what made us the Am HaNivchar, the chosen people. The fact that the Torah Shabbat Peh remained oral and was communicated orally meant that while you can go into any bookstore, while you could open the drawer of any hotel room and have access to the Bible... But the oral tradition remained the secret code of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people alone, it was the Torah Shabbat Peh. We discussed it in the afternoon call a few weeks ago, Rav Hutner on the Rabbeinu Tam, on, on Tosfos' commentary in Kedushin, about why the Talmud Bavli is called the Bavli, it's all Mivubal, and how Rabbi Yudha Nasi with the Mishnah, and Ravina and Ravashi with the Gemara, preserved the notion of it being oral even after it was written down by mixing it up and requiring a Rebbe-student relationship. But what makes us that Amman Nivchar is this Torah Shabbat Peh. So the Beis HaLevi talks about the fact that by having it be Torah Shabbat Peh, the first set of Luchos, HaKadosh Baruch really did us a favor. With the first set of Luchos, it was all spoon-fed to us. We had access to the totality of Torah, including the oral tradition. You didn't have to work for it. It was easy. But with the second set of luchos, all you had was a Sarasa Dibros, and now you got to break your teeth over the Gemara and Rashi and Tosfos and the Tos and the Nesivus and the Rabchayim. Now you got to break your teeth over acquiring 
Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral tradition. And what a gift that is, because only when you break your teeth, only when you express Yegiyah and Amel, only when you work for it, does it transform to, to become yours. So Rabbi Salavechik, based on this teaching of his great-grandfather, the Beis HaLevi, was opposed to the following. We have a minag, I'll end with this. We have a minag when you go to a Shalom Zachar. Today, Shalom Zachar is like a, a wedding smorg. It's a buffet. You, you would think that people didn't just come from Shabbos dinner. Potato kugel and chulin, as you should just be, you know, some jelly beans and potato chips. Today it's over the top. But what is the, what is the, uh, the universal food at all Shalom Zachar's? Arbus, chickpeas. And why do we eat chickpeas? Nobody eats raw chickpeas ever any other time. Why do you eat chickpeas at a Shalom Zachar? We all know. Chickpeas are round. They're like the lentil. They're like the egg. They're among the symbols of Avelis of mourning. And why, Rabbi Maskutz, I'm finishing, I'm sorry. And why, why at a Shalom Zachar would you eat something round, the symbol of mourning? Because after all, one of the reasons why are we there for the Shalom Zachar... We're there to comfort the baby who in the womb was learning Kola Torah Kula. In the womb had the greatest Rebbe in the world. In the womb was finishing all of Torah. And then the angel tapped him on the lip and caused him to forget. And now this baby Nebuch has to start learning from the beginning, take it again from the top. And we're comforting the baby for having lost this great Rebbe, leaving that base medrash called the womb. That's why we eat Arbus at Hashem Zachar. Briskers do not eat chickpeas at a Shalom Zachar. Because of this Beis HaLevi. Say, you're mourning the fact that the baby lost? This is wonderful. That's, it's beautiful. The baby has to start again. The baby's going to now take it from the top. We don't believe in a Torah which is spoon-fed to us, which we download, you know, uh, we download from, from the internet and we all of a sudden have it all in our head. We have to work for it. And the working for Torah is what transforms us. So the fact that the baby's cause to forget is not a bad thing. Says the Beis HaLevi, if you understand the two sets of luchos, it's a good thing. Which begs the question, and with this I really end, what's the point of the angel teaching the baby to begin with? If the angel's only going to cause, if the, angel, the baby's going to forget, then why learn it all to begin with? And said the Rav, it's very simple. Because by having learned it, it means that when you learn it again, it's familiar. When you learn it, it's not for the very first time. It's familiar to us. It's the pintaliyid. The fact that even the non-observant, uneducated, unaffiliated Jew walks around and has some, some magnetic pull, wants, has a thirst, wants to learn, wants to understand, wants to experience, wants to live. Where does that pintaliyid come from? The fact that the angel once learned with him or her. Her. There's even a woman's base medrash. The woman's medrash on the womb. The angel learned the whole Torah with us, makes it familiar to us, and that pintaliyid, come learn it again. I want to take out full page ads. With the rise of anti-Semitism across America, I think we're missing an opportunity to leverage it. We should be taking out full page ads that say to unaffiliated Jews, if they already want to kill you for being a Jew, you might as well learn what it means to be a Jew. If you're being targeted, you might as well find out a little bit more about what it means to be a Jew. And to try to wheel what... There's nothing... Nothing serves the growth of the Jewish people like a good anti-Semitic, like a good crisis. If you look through our history, we were the most... Not that we welcome it or want it, but when it comes, we shouldn't miss the opportunity to use it to leverage it for a sweeping movement of tshuva to reawaken that pintaliyid within all of us. I'm sorry, Rabbi Moskowitz. Everyone should stay for the phenomenal class on Malachim. Have a great day.